Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Karina Gould, lead organizer and co-founder of Indian People Organizing for Change, and Chris Oakes, Native American activist and Oakland resident. We'll be talking about their innovative quest to stop development on the West Berkeley Shell Mound Ohlone Village site and the birthplace of human settlement on the San Francisco Bay. Welcome to the program, Chris and Karina. Uh, You guys have been very involved recently in the Shell Mound Ohlone Village site controversy. And I want to talk about your innovative solutions to your opposition to the development there. What's going on over there? Well, thank you for having us on. We've been working on the Shell Mound issue, I guess, since about March of last year when the developer first took it to the zoning board. And there was a few of us, a handful of us, that showed up to that first initial meeting in March in opposition already to the plan. So the plan is to develop the 4th Street. It's it's 1900 4th Street. That's Spenger's parking lot? Right. Spanger's parking lot right across the street. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, why, you know, it's not even there anymore. But the Shell Mound is way deeper inside of there. And it's way bigger than um, the Spanger's parking lot. That's 2.2 acres. It actually goes um, to Second and Hearst. It goes under the railroad tracks, under Truett and White, under Spanger's, and out underneath the overpass. So it's a huge area of my ancestors. It's over 5,700 years old. It is the first place that people ever lived in the entire bay. It is the oldest of 425 plus shell mounds or burial sites of my ancestors that once rang the entire bay area. So many have been covered up. Emeryville is a was a big shell mound. Emeryville was the largest of the 425. It was over 60 feet high and 350 feet in diameter. Um, it was both the uh, West Berkeley shell mound and the Emeryville shell mound was on an 1852 Coast Survey map. So coming into the bay, you could use them as points of reference. So these um, shell mounds were really instrumental for us also as Ohlone people to be able to see out our relatives that were around the bay to have ceremony on top of them to be able to light fires so people can send signals to one another about different things. So these were um, absolutely our monuments to the ancestors, but are also sacred sites to the Ohlone people that exist here in the Bay Area today. Okay, so you're talking about the unique and significant points about this, the earliest settlement on the bay, ceremonial site, a burial ground, And you mentioned some other things, too. You say that it's listed on the National Registry of Historic Sites now? It qualifies. It is a landmark in the city of Berkeley, and it's also a state historic uh, landmark. And it qualifies for a National Historic Landmark. And the development is going to be what? What is it that they're proposing? They're proposing a five-story mixed-use building with parking, housing, restaurants, and stores. So pretty big structure compared to what's there right now. Yeah, it's absolutely What do the local businesses and residents think about this development? At the public comment period, um, one of the main developers for 4th Street came by, and he actually has hired an attorney who testified as well um, because they are against the development 
for a variety of reasons, one of which is that parking in that area, as anybody who knows who goes down there, it's horrible. And then the other one is it's just completely out of size for the area. So they brought up a bunch of concerns about the height of other buildings around it because it's going to be a few stories taller than mm. any other building near there. Truett and White, they also came to the last zoning board public comment, and they were also concerned about congestion and traffic in the area, which is also something that the zoning board members pretty much unanimously in their comments had mentioned was going to be one of the major issues to this project purely from a city planning perspective. The area pretty much has been overdeveloped, and so there isn't enough parking. Traffic is horrible, and the intersections there are bad, and they're just going to get worse. And there's real no remedy for it because it's a kind of secluded little pocket of a neighborhood. So the draft environmental impact report came out during the holiday season. And what happens with a lot of draft EIRs that come out around the holiday season is that people and the general public don't know about them and don't have time or energy to actually submit comments to the um, draft EIR. So we were able to actually do a lot of work. There's a committee of us that have been working together closely, meeting on a weekly basis, trying to figure out how to get the word out and to get people to come to the meeting. So they've been having public commenting both at the Zoning Adjustment Board and at the Landmarks Preservation Commission. We've been able to successfully get lots of people to both of those meetings, the last public commenting period at the Landmarks Preservation Commission at the North Berkeley Senior Center. And so getting folks to come out there and speak in opposition and to show people have come out with signs and um, have stood there in the background and have stayed until one thirty, two o'clock in the morning to give public testimony about why they're in opposition to this site has been really great to get public backing for us to oppose this particular site. So we've been working on it, I guess, since they they released it in November. They gave it two extensions. Um, The last extension they gave will go until February 9th. What are you recommending since today is the deadline? What time is is the last time anyone can comment? And how do they go about doing that? 5 p.m. is the end of the commenting period, and if you don't have time to get it in the mail today, you can go on to the West Berkeley Shell Mound Facebook page or the Indian People Organizing for Change website. You can find and download a copy of the letters that have been pre-created that have bullet points of different issues that are in the EIR that we'd like for people to comment to, and you can send that to Shannon Allen at City Planning in Berkeley. What are your major challenges for this project? I guess the major challenges have been educating people about this place. Because when you look at the at Berkeley itself, Berkeley is a small city that's grown over the last 150-so years. But they don't have a lot of history around shell mounds. There's some stuff about Ohlone people in the past. They see I have Ohlone Park there. Right. Underneath the overpass, there's uh, pictures of Ohlone people dressed in regalia in the past and stuff. But I think that that's the problem is that we're always viewed as somebody from the past. Right. So to realize that Ohlone people still exist here in our own territory, to bring people together to talk about what that looks like, to reimagine the Bay Area, to bring folks together on Ohlone territory with Ohlone presence still here, 
here is something that's been a little challenging. But I think that because we've done the work over the last 20 years, that it hasn't been as challenging as it could have been. I know that school children learn about these settlements. It's required in the state of California. I think one of the most important things for just like Bay Area residents in general is that this is the first place that human beings ever lived on the shores of the San Francisco Bay. This is a place that we, as everybody who lives currently in the Bay Area, should be a place that they're proud of. This is a place that's going to turn into another building. We have enough buildings around. We don't have sites like this. This is the first one. It's the oldest one. It also happens to be a burial ground where thousands and thousands of people were buried for over 5,000 years. It should be a a historic landmark for the Bay Area. Everybody should know about it. What are you proposing instead? We're proposing, we're working with a group that's going to create a plan that's an alternative plan. That's one of the problems with the draft EIR, that there is no alternative plan except to say that we could make it a smaller building maybe. And so that's just not okay to demolish something this sacred, this beautiful, this this meaningful. It should be an archaeological site with a museum over it. It should have something there that instead of just a plaque saying that Ohlone people were here at one time and we wiped them out and they're not here anymore. Because that's basically what we get. We need to show folks that this is a living culture. People have been coming to the Shell Mound. I still take my family there. We still pray there. And recently we've taken people there and had interfaith prayer circles there. Over 200 people come every time to pray there together. That this is a place that is supposed to be saved. This is a sacred place. It's a place that that shouldn't be destroyed. And so what we're doing is we're looking at how can we show this in a way that people can understand all of these other monuments that have been destroyed. Nobody can really wrap their head around what a shell mound looks like. Are there any drawings of it? Isn't there something from the 1800s? that I've seen pictures. There are maps that that were created. There are uh, pictures of remnants of the shell mound both in Berkeley, West Berkeley, and uh, Emeryville. And these mounds are created by thousands of years of people living in the same place. So it's not like we are wandering around that we had these settlements that were that people lived at. We were fishermen, so we lived on the water. The bay actually came up closer. So imagine going into this space and keeping it green. Imagine opening up the Strawberry Creek where my my ancestors lived next to so that people could see it again today. Imagine having a, a, a structure there, an arbor where we had our ceremonial dances at and having a mound built there and having structures of what the houses look like so that children not only from Berkeley but all over the Bay Area could come here and actually see that. As you said, they, they have to study this stuff. The train tracks are right there and can bring people here to Berkeley. So but, have you proposed a plan for something like this? So we have had the archaeologists. There's some archaeologists that have been involved, uh, not so much in the planning of, the, of what we're envisioning. <laughs> we have some uh, folks that do landscape architecture that are actually creating plans for us right now. We're hoping to submit that. Um, We'll be submitting that along with our comments for the draft EIR. Um, Those things will happen so that zoning board can actually see that this could actually be something different. We either open it up to green space and we say as the city of Berkeley that this is what needs to happen, that we don't need any more buildings down there, that we actually are going to respect the Ohlone people and the culture and that it's an ongoing thing. And yes, we want to help the Ohlone people to actually share their culture and beliefs here in the Bay area and at the and at the very least leave it alone and leave it as a parking area not to build on it ever again if you're just tuning in you're listening to method to the madness 
a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, I'm interviewing Karina Gould and Chris Oaks about the Berkeley Shell Mound Ohlone Village site. You were the main figure, one of the main figures in a film, a a great documentary, Beyond Recognition. And in that film, you created a land trust to solve a similar issue. Can you talk about what that was? And I understand also that you are trying to create a land trust here. Michelle Steinberg created the film Beyond Recognition because we um, were also involved in a takeover of our reoccupying one of our sacred sites that had two shell mounds on it in Segorate, where um, Glencove Vallejo is right now. In 2011, hundreds of people came out and supported us in protecting that sacred site at that, including Chris, who was on our legal team at the time. We stood there for 109 days taking over that space again and praying and hoping that it would be protected for all eternity. And for the most part, that that's what really happened. There was a federally recognized tribe that is from farther up north. Um, it's not their territory, but they stepped in and created a cultural easement with the park district and the city, which is the first that's ever happened. It's okay. a cultural easement that allows those three entities to have the same rights on that piece of land so it will be protected. It would not have happened had we not been there for 109 days pushing the envelope to make sure that something came through and happened. What we realized while we were there, if we had had a land trust at the time, we could have created that cultural easement ourselves. And so Beth Rose Middleton, who is a professor at UC Berkeley, wrote Land for Trust, actually invited me to a Native American meeting for Native people that had land trusts. And I couldn't understand at the time why I was going to the meeting until I got there and began to hear their stories. And I said, wait a minute, we should do that. So we have decided a group of us came together and we're creating the first urban Native women land trust ever created. Because Ohlone people's land is all urban now, just about. Um, but also, it's a Native Indigenous Women's Land Trust, not just a Ohlone Land Trust, because so many Native women have been brought to the Bay Area on relocation measures during the 50s and 60s, has raised their children here. Their children have children now. And so it's really about giving a place a space. And we're really having to buy our own land back. And that's what the, the Land Trust is about. So right now, we have done the Articles of Incorporation. We're working on f- completing the um, um, nonprofit status so that we can go forward and begin to raise money to actually do the purchasing of our land. But land is expensive here in the yeah. Bay Area. The 2.2 acres of land that's across from Spangers is going for $17 million. My ancestors, the first place that they ever lived, the first place that Ohlone babies were born in this area, the first place of laughter is going for $17 million. And if they put this building on top of that, that means that there is not going to be a place that my grandchildren who are laughing and being born on our land can go and pray with their ancestors. I think that society has come a bit farther than that, that we can actually say, we can actually share this with the first people that tended to this land. What needs to happen before you get your nonprofit status? What remains to be done? We are in the midst. We have our um, bylaws that were just completed. We are vetting it through the lawyer. The last paperwork needs to be submitted, and then it's all good. We actually have a website that's online right now. It's called uh, Segorate Land Trust. You better spell that. Yeah, www.segorate, S-O-G-O-R-E-A-T-E hyphen landtrust.org. And folks can go on, could learn about history in the Bay Area, can learn about why we created the land 
trust. There's also something on there called the Shaumi tax. And Shaumi in Ohlone language, the Ohlone language from this area, Chochenyo, means a gift. And so it allows people to go on there and to actually help us in finding ways to raise money. If they're a renter or an owner, how many bedrooms they have, how much land tax they could actually pay to help us to begin that process of purchasing land back. So it's a way for people to be involved. I encourage people in the Bay Area. And to see that great documentary that you feature so prominently in, yes, which yes. is called Beyond Recognition. Beyond Definitely recognition. check that out. Yes, thank it's, you so it's much. It's a good one. I wanted to ask you if you felt like Standing Rock and all the historic precedent that set, although right now it might be under siege with our, our new president, but do you feel that that has invigorated this cause? Yeah, I would say that um, in the last 20 years, we've been working on shell mound issues in the Bay Area. We've done walks to shell mounds. We've done the occupation. We go to the Emeryville on the day after Thanksgiving for the last 19 years, asking people to come and help us to give out information, ask people not to shop there. And I think that when people began to see Standing Rock and social media has been such a great wonder in helping people to see this, see what was happening out there and to actually follow along. So many people, activists from the Bay Area, have gone out to Standing Rock. And one of the beautiful things that has happened was that the elders out in Standing Rock actually gave a directive to young people that were coming out there and going back home was to get involved with your own local issues. This is our Standing Rock right now in the Bay Area. This is our front line. And so young people, allies and accomplices have come together, have helped us to try to figure out how they could do work to help us to get fundraisers for the lawyer that we've had to hire, have done fundraisers to to get information out, have created events pages so that uh, folks will know about it. So it's been a wonderful coupling between us. Yeah, it's not over yet, of course. No, it's not over yet. But it it has really kind of lit some fires, I think. Yeah, it's been great. You've been at this for 20-some years. How did you know you were a Loney? How did this all come about? Right. I grew up in the Bay Area, went to uh, went to public schools. My mom always told us that we were a Loney. We, she knew that we came from Mission San Jose. That's where we were enslaved at. My great-grandfather, Jose Guzman, was the last one of the last speakers of the Chochenyo language. Can you speak it? No, I can't speak it. I can say a few words inside of Chochenyo. My daughter, um, it was her dream since she was about 14 to begin the language. And she's starting to do that now. And she's teaching my grandchildren as well. So it's a wonderful thing that that's. And it's my hope that I will learn enough so that I can pray in my own language. So we've always known who we are. But it's not that long ago that California Indians, it was against the law for them to even be here. It wasn't that long ago that California Indian kids were taken out of their homes and put into boarding schools like my mom and my aunties and uncles. So it was very scary. Your mother was in a boarding one of the boarding schools? Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's been a real, it's a resilience uh, way for people to say Ohlone people are bringing back language and culture and dance and song because our ancestors put those things away, though because our ancestors gave those things to people to hold on to until we were able to grab them again, until it was it was safe for us to come out. And I think that that's really important that Nels Nelson, for whatever reason, created this map with 425 shell mounds way before I was here. In 1909, he wrote that map down. But today we were able to use that in order to find out where all of our sites were. 
J.P. Harrington recorded my great-grandfather on wax cylinder, and it's in the Smithsonian so we could reclaim our language again. So there's these people that put these things away for us because our ancestors whispered in their ear and told them to do that so that we can come back again and share this with our children and our grandchildren. So it's our responsibility. We are the stewards of this land. We were put here because this was the place we were supposed to take care of in this part of the world. And so I really believe that that's our... That's what we're supposed to do. Bringing back language and song and all of that it's is part of the dream. Important. Yeah. Part of that dream. Let's talk about the importance of that language and culture. And you know, why is this important? It's important for the healing of this land. It's important for the healing of the people that live on this land, not just the Ohlone people. When you it, say healing, are you talking about environmental degradation? I'm talking about racism. I'm talking about the slavery. I'm talking about environmental. I'm talking about the invisibility of Ohlone people. I'm talking about all of the horrific things that have happened since the genocide that was created on this land that needs to be taken care of. I'm talking about the thousands of ancestral remains at UC Berkeley that need to be put back into the ground. I'm talking about all of those kinds of things that need to be fixed here so that we could all become more human with each other again. It starts here. It starts with us fixing it with the first people of this land. There was at one point the United States government had a government-to-government relationship with, with our tribe. And then there was a point in history where the person that was in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs wrote something that basically got rid of us. He wrote a line that said, for all intents and purposes, no money was needed in order to purchase land for the homeless Indians in the area. Now, it takes an act of Congress to actually wipe out a tribe, and that never happened. But there has not been any government-to-government relationship since then. So it's really difficult to talk to the general public about these kinds of things because the general public doesn't even learn what sovereignty means, what an Indian tribe and federal recognition means in high school. And most kids, like we talk about it, kids learn about Ohlone people in third and fourth grade, but they learn about us in the past like we don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah, the Indians around here used to do this and they used to do that. But what about the Indian people here today that drive cars and have cell phones and go to Raiders games? It's always about the Indians that were dressed up in feathers a long time ago. And people didn't dress in feathers every day. Those were regalia that we used for ceremony. So we have to break those ideas in people's minds. But we also have to do a better job educating people in, that go to public schools about what does this? What is the responsibility of the federal government to the nations, many different nations, hundreds of different nations that lived here in the, in the United States before it was the United States? And we do a really bad job in the education system doing that. Part of the history of how Indian tribes were recognized by the federal government comes from the fact that we have a several hundred year history of being Indian people in the United States. One of the issues that we get, especially out in California, is that the westward expansion of the United States followed several hundred years of Congress changing their minds. So under the Supreme Court decision of John Marshall, he said that Indian nations were what they call domestic dependent nations, which means they're under federal government control just legally. And so part of that was that George Washington and the Delaware people, they were talking in the late 1700s. And as they traveled west, as the as United States grew, they had different policies and different agreements with all of the Indian tribes going one by one. We've got about 430 recognized Indian tribes. Each one had their own agreements. And part of that was reflected in what year it was. 
who was in Congress? Who was president? Was it um, Andrew Jackson, who was known as the Indian killer? Or was it President Washington, who in fact was fighting for independence from a foreign nation? And all the way until the War of 1812, Indians were a strong part of the United States military or the British military or the French military, depending on who they were aligned with. So a lot of the East Coast tribes have a completely different history because they were actually allies of these emerging governments. And then when you get past the Mississippi, you had the policies of a few hundred years of Indian wars, which is why, for instance, the Lakota people and the Utes, Apache people and Geronimo and Sitting Bull, and you get these Indian leaders for about 100 years that were known for the Indian wars because that's when the West was expanding rapidly and they were killing Indians to do it. But the little-known American history that we don't know as much is what happened when not the Mexican or the Spanish government got to California, but was when the United States government got to California. So we're talking in the 1850s. So that was, you know, 150 years of Indian policy that had been used by the United States and by Congress. And so you had a completely different idea of how to deal with Indian people by the time you got here. So what happened was that they were keen to recognize as many tribes as possible on the East Coast because they were allies. They were keen to run through all the tribes in the middle of America from North Dakota all the way down to Texas and all the way out to Colorado. And by the time they got here, they were purely motivated by taking the land and they saw the Indian people as a burden on the West Coast and California specifically because it was one of the last states. This is where... Congress made it a policy to not recognize the tribes in California because they saw them as a burden because of 150 years of U.S. policy with Indian tribes. Chris, what is your background here? What are you doing in this movement? My mom is from England and my father's from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. The reason we're the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma is because Andrew Jackson relocated us in the 1830s from the state of Mississippi, which is our actual true home. That's where our origin stories come from. Choctaw people were pivotal in fighting in the War of 1812 against other Indian nations. For instance, Tecumseh, uh, who's like a famous Indian leader who was very anti-American because he was on the British side. My tribe fought for for the United States. We were part of the War of 1812. We were a large part of the victory of the War of 1812. The reason that we don't have any reservation in the state of Oklahoma is because we picked the wrong side of the war for the Civil War. So that's just a little brief history of how our tribe has been affected over in the state of Mississippi and Oklahoma by United States policy. United States Indian policy has changed depending on who's president, who's in Congress, what war we're fighting, and where we are. Part of me here is that my dad, his family was born in Oklahoma since it became a state. My great-great-grandmother arrived in Oklahoma the day it became a state as a settler. She was on the non-Indian side. And my dad's family has been born in the state of Oklahoma since we were relocated there in the 1830s. He moved out here because of the Air Force. My granddad was relocated here as part of the Air Force. They came to California. The reason why, for instance, Intertribal Friendship House is the oldest pan-Indian meeting center in the United States, which is right here in Oakland on the West Coast, is because Indians have been relocated to California, specifically to the industrial areas like Oakland, Los Angeles, which is where some of the largest Indian populations are in the United States, is because of relocation. Sometimes that happened from what they call the relocation programs of the United States. Sometimes it comes because Indians have overwhelmingly been some of the most active uh, volunteers for the United States military. Uh, My dad went to Cal Berkeley, and so that's how my family got here. 
he actually wanted to fly my mom to Oklahoma to have me and my brother born there because we were the, the first generations not born in Oklahoma since we were relocated there as a tribe. I went to school at California State University East Bay and created a degree in American Indian pre-law because I knew that Indian law was what I wanted to do with my life. I remember ever since I was a kid, I would learn about the Indian policy. I would learn about sacred sites, and it was something that would oftentimes would move me to tears. And I knew it was something that I was passionate about. And when I started getting involved with Karina, one of the first sacred sites that I really sat down and worked for was in Segorite, which was in Vallejo in 2011. Um, and ever since then, it's been kind of hard to, to not follow my responsibilities, uh, to not follow the privileges that I've been given in this life, whether it be economic privileges of where I was born, but also my history of how my people got here to California, whether it be the Indian side or the English side. Taking a step back from the Indian ancestry, for me, just as somebody who was born in Oakland, we need to look around and see the sacred sites that are around us. We need to know the history. People lived here for thousands of years before us, and they're still here. And so part of that is acknowledging sacred sites and is knowing where these places are and what they mean our generation, I feel, overwhelmingly has realized we're now coming to grips with our colonized history as colonizers, as people who participated in the colonization of North America and who also participated in the colonization of California. And we're realizing that we're on stolen land. And some people call it guilt. That's one way of thinking about it. But it's that we have to be more conscious. We have to think and we have to respect the people who are here now and the people who are here before us. And when you think about how long Berkeley has been a city compared to the 5,700 years that the West Berkeley Shell Mound has been there, it's just a drop in the bucket. So anyone listening today, I'm going to um, encourage people to go on to the Facebook page, West Berkeley Shell Mound, um, and to download the letters and to email it into Shannon Allen's at the city planning. But not only for them to do it, I need them to get five to ten pe other people to do it. So if you're sitting at your office, you're listening to this, you have your coworkers, you have your mom, your dad, whoever it is that you know that's close to you and say, this is the right thing to do as citizens of Berkeley as citizens of the United States, that the Ohlone people deserve to have this place saved and that we can also ask the zoning board to actually change the zoning of that particular site, even though it's private property, to make it a place that's actually open space. If you want to make that a comment, ask the zoning board to make it a place that doesn't ever get built upon, that it stays open space and that they could rezone that particular lot to do just that. Stop what you're doing grab a pen, get involved. I appreciate your energy today. So thank you, Karina Gould. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. Tune in again next Friday at noon.